Hello and welcome to the All In My Head podcast. We're glad you decided to give this podcast a listen. We're a group of teens that are making a podcast for youth by youth. We will counter stereotypes around mental health in the teen, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus community and talk about things you might find a little uncomfortable. It's, it's real teens, real talk. Hello and welcome to the All In My Head podcast. I want to preface this episode with a content warning. We'll be discussing topics related to suicide, and these topics may be triggering to some people, so please listen only if you feel comfortable. This month is Suicide Prevention Month, and we'll be putting out a series of episodes focused on prevention tactics for suicidal thoughts or actions, how to be a supporting figure to people with suicidal thoughts, and coping with suicidal thoughts. Today, I'll be sharing my own experience of helping a friend through suicidal thoughts, and we'll also be interviewing youth suicide prevention experts. It can be really scary and uncomfortable to have a friend ask you for support when feeling suicidal. I've had a couple of experiences where friends reached out to say that they were feeling suicidal or extremely depressed, usually through social media or text. Whenever this happens, the first thing I do is make sure that they haven't hurt themselves yet and are not planning to right then. From there, I continually talk to them, either through text or over the phone. Often, people with suicidal thoughts are feeling very isolated and alone, so it's really important to keep talking with them, even if it's just about your day or something basic like that. Additionally, depending on the case, you may want to let their parents know what's going on. If you can't be there physically with them and you're worried that they may harm themselves, definitely let their parents know or talk to a trusted adult in your life that can handle the situation. In my case, I talked through it with my parents, and we called my friend's parents to let them know what was going on because they were out of the house. Throughout all of this, I was giving positive affirmations to my friend and reminding them of the incredible person that they are, and of all the people who love them. One of the most important things is to avoid placing blame on your friend or trivializing their struggle. You really just want to be a supportive figure and listen to what they have to say. Don't try to solve their problems for them. I hope this helps anyone who has suicidal friends. No situation is the same, but there are strategies that can be applied to help in many circumstances. Up next, we'll interview a youth suicide prevention expert. Hello, this is Lauren from the All in My Head podcast. Today we will be talking with Drew from Sources of Strength. Drew, could you please share some of your identities with us? Yeah, hey, uh, good morning. So my name is uh, Drew Olguin. My full name is actually Andrew Martino Gain. Um, I'm 39 years old. I actually identify as biracial, multi-ethnic. Um, I'm Latino, so my my father's Mexican, my mother is, is white. Um, I'm also a cisgendered, heterosexual male. I'm a father of two kids. I'm also a husband. I would also say I'm I'm an activist in the community, as well as a social worker. And I was born and raised in Portland. Thank you for that, Drew. I'm Lauren. I identify as a cis, um, hetero, white female. Drew, could you please share what your role is at Sources of Strength? Yeah, so my my actual, my technical title is a statewide trainer. And so what that actually looks like is, and we'll probably talk about this in a minute, what Sources does, right? But I work for Matchstick Consulting. And so we partner with the National Sources of Strength team and provide the trainings in schools on the statewide level. So at this point, I'm working with schools across the state to, you know, train adult advisors as well as student advisors as it pertains to suicide prevention. 
Okay, thank you for that. Now we will get started with some of the more deeper questions. What are some of the signs that your friend is heading towards suicidal ideation or depression? Yeah, I think they're definitely both connected, but I'll break it down into depression and then someone who may be heading into um, having some suicidal ideation, right? And be impacted by that. So someone with depression, a lot of times it can look, it can look so different for so many people, right? But I think for someone who's, some of their behaviors start shifting. So someone who's more extroverted becomes more introverted um, or stops showing up in spaces they usually are in. So they almost start to uh, retract a bit, right? Or if patterns of sleep change, so either sleeping too much, sleeping too little, also food, so it's eating, not eating, or or eating too much as well. And just overall, some of the times it's just how they speak about life as well, right? So there's all different types of signs around around depression. So those are some um, warning signs around like just depression, right? I would say in terms of when depression starts to become almost like the door opens into some suicidality stuff and suicidal ideation, the signs there are, um, well, one, if they're talking about it. So sometimes young people will just straight up, especially with their peers, will just talk about, you know, not wanting to be here anymore or wishing they were no longer alive or partaking in self-harm behaviors, things like that. And I think some of the things we really need to look at for someone who's potentially at, at risk of attempting to uh, complete is if they, you know, start writing letters to people, they start giving things away, they start, again, like retracting, like com- like completely pulling themselves away from the things that they normally do, whether that's sports, community events, if they're artists or musicians, they stop playing their instruments. All those things are warning signs that something's off and that someone needs help without asking for it. One of the things that things really you know, it's a challenge for young people, especially to hold this, but it's also a beautiful thing. And why we do this program is that most times uh, young folks will come to a peer, right? And so that's how we know is they'll, they'll come to a friend, will come to another peer and kind of let them know where they're at, um, which can be a lot to hold. Uh, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that. Thank you for all of that. My next question is, how do you prepare yourself to talk with your friend? that are suicidal how do you deal with the trauma afterwards and deal with your own mental health at the same time this is one of the questions you're already dipped a little bit into but could you please share some more about how we can support ourselves when talking to someone with suicidal ideation yeah i really appreciate that because that can be you know even before this role i worked with young people in schools for over a decade and this was probably one of the biggest things that came up so i'm really glad we're talking about this because it doesn't just impact the person who's who's dealing with it. Obviously, it impacts them the most, but the people they share with, you know, can have a pretty profound impact. It's really serious stuff. So I'd say a couple of things is really important for y'all to know is one, and it's the hardest thing I've had to wrap my brain around as a youth worker, a social worker, and things like that, is that when it comes to someone's suicidality or their mental health, we don't have a lot of control at times, right? And it's not necessarily on us, right? So a person's going to do typically what they're going to do. Now, there's things we can do to support them. And at the end of the day, we have to understand that that person has a real choice in this, um, a choice to be here, not be here, seek help, not seek help. 
So just dropping your rings on, like, it's not all on you to hold. Two, I think the thing is, how can we connect this person to a trusting adult? I think that's vital because, again, as young folks, y'all are already holding a whole lot. And it's unfair for you to hold that all alone and try to figure it out it alone. So it's definitely a it's a community thing, a wraparound support thing, getting a trusted adult into the space. In terms of, like, dealing with what might come up afterwards when someone shares that with you or if you know a friend who struggles with it you know you have to step into those conversations to be supportive for them it's understanding what is your relationship to your own mental health what is your relationship to suicidal ideation right because you might have had those thoughts before or you might be in a depressive state so when you're going to support someone it could activate that it could trigger that so you need to understand that before going into it I would also say that that you, as the supportive peer, also need to have other supportive peers that you can go to. Not necessarily talk about what was shared, but like how can you have folks to hold you up when you're struggling because you're holding so much? And then also I would highly suggest also a supportive, trusted adult for yourself to be able to go to them and talk to them uh, and just kind of unpack and empty your cup, metaphorically speaking, on what how, how it was to hold all that. What are you needing? And then I'm always a fan, as someone that has also been a therapist, I'm always a fan of young folks uh, engaging in, in mental health services themselves, whether they're in a depressive state in that moment or not, just proactively having that space to kind of talk about things. I think talk therapy can be very, very helpful, especially when you're holding some of those big other people's traumas and stories. And then the other thing is like leaning into your strengths, like what are the things you like to do that help you kind of escape from the world, whether that's reading or writing or creating music or working out or sports or whatever, journaling. Always got to have some type of healthy outlet to rely on. Yeah, that's something I can truly relate to as someone who has helped friends who are suicidal or have depression get through that part in their life and find greater meaning, essentially, and just really be there for them has definitely been difficult since I do struggle with my own mental health problems and I do have my own problems and things to deal with that has definitely been difficult for me and that's something I know many teens out there can relate to so thank you for that bit and little section that was definitely appreciated. Another question I have along that is what are some of the resources out there for suicidal youth slash allies? I know you talked a little bit about talk therapy, but is there any other resources you recommend? Um, I want to back up just a little bit and talk a little about, you know, source of the strength because so a lot of the modalities out there for suicide intervention happen when, like what you're talking about, how do we intervene when someone's actually feeling suicidal or what are the warning signs or how do you have a conversation to support someone, right? But with sources of strength, it actually starts well before that. And it's what we call an upstream suicide prevention model, right? So it's really leaning on, um, instead of like focusing on the sad, the shock and the trauma of what's going on, it's really looking at what are the strengths? What is the hope? What is the help we can see? And it's really peer led, right? So that doesn't necessarily address someone in the moment who's dealing with it, but it's creating these spaces of safety, these spaces where um, there's trusted adults where folks can connect, right? And really lean on what are the strengths? What are the things in my life that I can lean on in times when inevitably I will 
have these moments of whether depression or just really negative thoughts or really just de- who knows, really actually dealing with a traumatic event. How can I lean on strengths to kind of build up this resiliency to, to push through in times of, of hardship? But in times of like someone who's at that kind of before that point, Michelle, when someone's to the point of actually considering it or having those thoughts that they don't want to be there or feeling like they don't want to be here anymore. You know, talk therapy is vital, but I think it's can be tough when someone's really in these crisis modes to say, okay, Hey, let's, uh, let's call a mental health services and let's be on a two, you know, two week wait list. And then you have to have do an assessment where they ask you all these really challenging questions that could trigger you. And then maybe you have, you know, kind of finding a therapist. I was like, it's kind of a weird thing to say was kind of like dating it's like how do you find that right fit for someone that's actually you're comfortable talking with so what i've found really helpful is when someone's in crisis in those moments they actually need someone and something right then and there for instance there's a national lifeline uh, the national suicide prevention lifeline which is vital because it's a 24-hour hotline you can call anytime you want and there's also like an online chat so if you don't actually want to talk you can you can text with somebody and that can be helpful and then the other thing is the trevor so the trevor uh, project is also another national crisis resource line but it's actually specifically for lgbtqi plus identifying people who are feeling even more isolated than folks who don't identify in that demographic. So that's a helpful one. And then the other one is also the youth line, which is the one I always push for folks to go to because it's teen to teen. And I don't know the exact statistic, but it is, you know, young people will go to other young people in times of need as it pertains to their their, their mental health or suicidal ideation a hundred times more than they will to an adult. Like it just, it's just the truth. So this youth line, let's talk is beautiful because you can call in. I believe they also have a a text line as well. And they also have a racial equity support line as well, which I think is a beautiful thing. And then lastly, locally here in Portland, I always, even as someone as, you know, I'll be personal local immediate here, someone outside of my profession, who's also dealt with my own mental health and depression is that there's these really beautiful walk-in clinics in Portland. There's the Cascade Mental Health on Northeast Hancock. There's the Cascadia Behavioral Urgent Care Walk-In. And there's also one in Clackamas. And these ones you can, you know, they're not 24-7, but during the days you can basically walk in and be like, yo, I'm going through it and I need some support right now. And they will connect you with someone there, uh, set up a plan of assistance and get you connected to resources quicker. Because a lot of people try to access resources and there's always a wait list. But when you go to the, through those walking clinics, it kind of signals them like, oh, this person actually needs to get in. We need to prioritize them because they're in a state of crisis right now. I heard a couple of those for the first time, especially the walk-in clinics. I haven't really heard much about those. But one thing that stuck out to me was you talked about the specified resources for LGBTQ plus youth and BIPOC youth. Could you share how you have seen those communities be impacted over the year? Yeah, I know. I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think this is like a really important question. I also want to acknowledge that when it comes to someone who identifies as BIPOC and has worked in communities of color for my entire career. So I wouldn't still consider myself an expert because when it comes to 
race and ethnic groups, there's so much different cultural understandings of what this means. So I say that in like, this could be its own episode in itself. I just want to start off by saying that. But with that being said is um, I'd say in my experience working in schools, both with sources and before I came to, to sources is that a couple of things, I'll start with LGBTQI young folks that I have seen impacted the most in terms of nationally, they're the highest risk group, but I would say that the, the young folks that have in the LGBTQI plus in the Portland area that I've worked with are ones that have been the closest to being ready to follow through with suicide. Right. And so, and with completing or, or attempting. Right. And so um, I think really what sources does is, you know, we don't come in in those moments and say, okay, here's the intervention. What we do is we come in and we create a space where students can be seen, where students can be heard, uh, where students can feel safe. And really we're training also the, the adults. So who are the adults in the school that students can identify as that's a safe person? And so how do we train them up to support them? And then what are the kind of like practices we can do in the school building throughout the year that really send a message to all students, but specifically LGBTQI and, and BIPOC students that, you know, we see you, your voice matters, and you have a safe place to come and, and be your, yourself. With that being said, you know, we also, you know, there's the sources of strength wheel. So where, where are the strengths that you have that you identify with? I think a lot of times when you ask young people that they have a hard time answering that. And so it takes time for us adults to really sit with them and go like, okay, so you've been through some hardships and you are experiencing some really challenging things as it pertains to your mental health and suicidality. And you're still here right now. Like you're literally, you're, you're alive right, right now. You are here right now. You are talking with us right now. So what has gotten you up this morning? What got you up for the, the last 15, 16, 17 years, right? Is it family? Is it spirituality? Is it, you know, is it, is it someone in the community? Is it a hope you have, a dream you have? What has gotten you up? What is that strength that you lean on? Or what is the strength you may not even be aware of that you actually do have? I'm trying to help folks find that. I think with BIPOC communities, it gets really challenging. And, you know, that's also a, a really broad because there's all different types of, uh, as you know, communities of color, right? Um, but I can speak, you know, someone that's worked really closely with the Mexican community in Portland, as well as the black community in Portland. I think there's times of stigma about asking for help as it pertains to mental health. There's also a stigma around seeking therapy, seeking services, as it's not something that's talked about widely in those communities. Um, I do think it's got, I think we've done a real good job by we, I mean, just as, as a community, as young people, as also as adults, as, as trying our best to normalize it as much as possible. So, but I would say like the risk factors are definitely there as folks are navigating, you know, racism, sexism, transphobia, all that kind of stuff, all the isms, that stuff's in their face every single day on top of life is just already hard for everyone, right? And so you put those added layers on and it becomes a real issue. So I think we are, as sources, um, we are headed in the right direction and we still have a lot of work to do in terms of how can we continue to support BIPOC and LGBTQI plus students and leaning on their strengths and connecting with other peers as well as with trusted adults in the building in times of, of like despair or hopelessness, right? You keep mentioning how you can find a trusted adult to talk to. 
But how do you do that? What is a mandatory reporter and what do they do? I think that's the million dollar question right there. Well, first I'd say any adult in the building that works in your school by state law, and I believe national law is a mandatory reporter, right? I would say also it's important to know is just because you go to an adult who's a mandatory reporter and discuss your mental health or even you know, suicidal ideations or whatever's going on doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that they're involving any kind of authorities. It it does mean that they have to notify folks in the building. So everyone's on the same page because we have a a legal obligation to, to support young people and to follow through and, and, and not just say we're here to listen, but not actually do anything about it as well as involving, you know, family or different community folks. So, so that can, I seem that times can, for you, I've seen young people feel hesitant to speak to, to adults as it pertains to that. I, I do think the more adults talk about with students what mandatory reporting is and start normalizing what that can or cannot look like before someone shares with an adult is important, if that makes sense. I would say, though, in terms of finding a trusted adult, that really is going to, you know... That relies on a couple things. It's not on the student to figure that out necessarily, right? I would say, yes, y'all will know who you're connected to. You'll have that gut feeling like this is someone I can really trust. But at the end of the day, it's on the adults in the building to build those relationships with you all. Everyone in the building, you know, got into this work because they cared about young people. It doesn't always show up, but it is on the adults. And I think this is very important for adults to hear, like, it is on us to figure out how to connect with young people, like a real true connection where they're like to kind of normalize the the relationship and humanize the relationship a bit to have allow students to feel comfortable to share. I would also say, I think it's important, like if you can find mentors um, outside of school or adults outside of school that you can lean on, that's when you can get away from some of the mandatory reporting if folks are worried about, I don't want to share this with a mandatory reporter, right? So who's, who's an adult friend in the community, which at times some folks don't have. So I want to name that as well. But at the end of the day, you know, you all get to decide who's the person that you trust in that building. And then on the other side, it's on us adults to figure out, like, if we're not connecting with kids, then we got to, we got to kind of look in the mirror and say, what are we doing here? How can we find ways to connect? That's an interesting point, because it seems like it's always the youth who has to do the connections with the teacher and staff at a school who because they are mandatory reporters. And I feel like it's just an interesting perspective, because I have always seen the student-teacher dynamic where the student has to be the one who reaches out, and it's usually not the teacher. I'd love to hear a teacher's perspective on this eventually, especially in a school like mine, where there are over 30 students in a class and over 1,600 students in the school. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, like, logistically, that can really be a challenge. Uh, I think I just have such a radical approach to education at times, so it's that's also going to be a whole nother, <laughs> a whole nother episode. But it's like for me, it's like there's this curriculum and education piece that needs to happen for young people, and if we're not slowing down to create a space like a, a container in which young people feel safe, seen, and heard, and connected, and not spent time actually building relationships with students up front and building community in the classroom 
then the curriculum and education piece doesn't really always land for the majority of the class. So it's, it's kind of one of those things. And it's like, how do we prioritize it? I would say up front relationship, 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 and community. And then the education and the learning will fall into place later, if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. One more question I have. One thing I see a lot with my peers is how do you handle someone who uses suicidal manipulation and abuse? I've seen this a lot at the high school level, and I was wondering if you could take a second to talk about that. Yeah, when you sent my, that question is, oh my gosh, this is so important because you are so right. And in fact, I've seen that, I see that more, probably more in my career than almost any other thing that comes up, right? Whether it's like a boyfriend, girlfriend, or girlfriend, girlfriend thing, whatever, or it's just a friendship or a group thing, it, it, it comes up, right? I'll say a couple of things. One is, it kind of goes back to my earlier statement around not being like, not having to hold this alone, right? And understanding that another person is going to make a decision kind of regardless, right? So two things. One, whether you're the student or you're the staff in the building, it's no one's job to assume that this is a manipulation tactic, right? Because it could be, and it might be, and it also might not. Right. If we if we leave space for assumption and someone follows through and completes suicide, that's a massive problem. And that's will be on on that will be on people's conscious. Right. That will be on people's minds, hearts. And for adults, that's it's on their like careers. It's very layered. Right. So I'd say I always have treated it as a real thing, regardless of how if kids are saying it in a joking manner or if it's using kind of, a, you know, as a threat or manipulation tactic, whatever, I'm treating every one of those things the same. I would say it's very important that that person is also connected to a trusted adult in the building. If we can find them one, that is important because there needs to be a couple conversations. One, they may need some support, um, but they also might need, if it is a manipulation tactic, or I actually like to look at it this way. Young people, this goes for adults, but we're speaking about young people. Young people's behaviors, regardless of how they show up, is always an attempt to get a need met. So what is the need? And it's not for you to figure out, this is for the adults. Like The adults need to figure this out. There's obviously a need that they're trying to get met that's not being met. Let's co-discover what that need is, right? And it could just be connection. It could be they need some support looking at what are their inner strengths that they're not aware of, that they can lean on before we kind of move forward. So I share that with you because it's important to know that it's very layered. It needs to be taken serious regardless. And also as a young person, it's kind of out of your control, right? So just because you, if you could might, you might even feel like I'm, I don't want to be connected with this person anymore because it's too heavy on me and I can't be friends with them anymore. And you may have to make that decision. And even if there's threats being made, well, if you're not going to be friends with me, I'm going to take my life or whatever those things may be. You also have to understand that, like, let's get them support. Let's get them connected. And it's not on you. Like you are, you are a young adult with a developing mind trying to figure out what's going on with your life and your journey. It's unfair for that to just be resting on your shoulders. So take it serious, get them connected to a trusted adult. You're not alone in this and it's not on you. That's definitely a great point. Just because I know a bunch of teens are very hesitant about reaching out to a trusted adult because most of them don't want it to be reported. 
But thanks for explaining what a mandatory and non-mandatory reporter is, just because I feel like those two questions are so connected. And as a teen, I know so many of my peers have struggled with mental health problems, and most of them don't want to reach out in fear of it being reported because of the major stigma behind it. Yeah, I think that going back to that teen line, though, as well, I mean, it's it's like one of those things is like that might be maybe they're not ready for trusted adult yet, or maybe they have trust issues with adults, which most which a lot of young people do fair and rightfully so. So what does it look like to get them locked into support groups? And that teen hotline is vital. And then at the end of the day, like that's the whole one of the whole points of sources of strength. If, if we come in and train do a staff advisory training with the, the, the adults in the building who, who are wanting to be part of this. And then also do the student advisory training where the adults are part of that training together. That starts to build some of that strength. We start to kind of humanize and normalize those relationships between the adult and the young person. And that that's kind of the ultimate goal, right? Is, yeah, there's young people right now that aren't trusting adults. But how can we start to embed some of this connection in the school into which down the line, that isn't an issue and that adults are not only just seen as trusted adults, but actually are and actually like walk the talk, talk the walk. I'm just going to change gears a little bit and ask you, how do you speak with a suicidal neurodivergent person versus the suicidal neurotypical person? How does this factor change how you interact? Really good question. A future psychologist on hand here, huh? Let's see. I think, this can get really tricky. So if you look at neurodivergency, it is a massive umbrella. And under that umbrella falls so many different forms of what that could look like. So I think it is, it's something to keep in mind. It's something to, to pay attention to, but it's actually not going to necessarily change. Like it might change maybe some of the, how, some of the language I use, maybe some of my overall like communication skill set approaches might change a little bit, but in terms of how you serve those people, whether they're neurodivergent or not, I'm not going to spend a ton of time there because at the end of the day, whether someone technically falls under the suicidal neurodivergent or someone is the neurotypical person, as you would say, mental health can still permeate on both sides. And at the end of the day, those are kind of like categories that we place people in. And we know what happens when we place people into categories. It can become a, a, a dangerous game, right? And so I'm, I'm trying to answer this directly, but it's really hard to answer directly because it's, it's so layered because someone could, could have multiple identities under the, the neurodivergent umbrella and may need totally different follow-up supports. But in terms of like suicide ideation, mental health, and just the overall conversation and approach, it has to be treated the same as in regards to the seriousness in which we take it, if that makes sense, right? And so, yeah, I just really, I just, I hate to say this, but it just depends, right? It, it really depends on that person's, what they, whether they're on the spectrum or they're dealing with ADHD, OCD, or all three, all right? And so I think wraparound support is important too. I, I would definitely not expect a young person to understand those two concepts and figure out how to hop in there like a young psychologist. That's not really on y'all to have to do that, that. That's asking a real, that's asking a lot for a young person. Yeah, that's a great point. Just because it depends so much on the person, it's hard to make that judgment call. 
And this is where you have to reach out to a mandatory or non-mandatory reporter for that support system. I think one thing I want to say about a trusted adult, I think about myself, I think about friends I've had or family, and then I think about young people that I've worked with that are now adults. And I think about moments where two things, either a trusted adult was involved, followed through, which sometimes means having to do a mandatory report and have an intervention. And then the moment that young person feeling frustrated, almost feeling like betrayed in the moment or whatever, but 10 years down the road, they can go back and go, hey, there was an adult who intervened when I was going through some. At the moment, I perceived it as something. But at the end of the day, the message is loud and clear. This person actually cares. This person followed through. Versus going to a trusted adult. Yeah, maybe they listened, but there was no intervention. There was no follow-up. And then young people carry that with them too. And that just continues with the snowball effect of, of like, see, adults don't care. They didn't do nothing. They listened, but they didn't actually do nothing. So sometimes in the moment, I think it's one of those things that it can feel really tough for both the mandatory reporter and the young person. And it's about love. It's about follow-through. It's about care. And I think it can be done in a way that's not so much just technical around making a call and filling out the little the safety plan. But it's like, does this person actually care? Do they follow back up with me? Do they check in on me throughout the rest of the year versus just that one report they made? If that makes sense. But it can be the difference between that times someone completing or not, or really someone, I think more importantly, the difference between someone feeling like here's an example of when an adult actually care about me. And that can be a source of strength. In fact, it's on the wheel, right? It's it's on the wheel of having, of, of our sources of having a mentor, right? Or having a trusted, positive friend group. Yeah, I've taken a look at the sources strength wheel, and I feel like it's a big one on there, although all of them are freakishly important. I feel like that's a great end to our podcast. Thank you for meeting with me. And thank you to our listeners for coming to today's podcast. Please make sure to give us a follow on our Instagram at the underscore all in my head podcast. Also make sure to give us a follow on wherever you get your podcast to make sure you stay up to date with the rest of the Suicide Prevention Month series. This podcast was created using a grant from the Oregon Alliance to Prevent Suicide in partnership with the Association of Oregon Community Mental Health Programs and with funding from the Oregon Health Authority. The adult advisor is Nicole Mayer, music by Waterboy, shared on Pixabay.